Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Well, it's our last episode of 2022. I can't believe we've all made it. Congratulations, everybody. And as we head into the holidays, I know lots of us are thinking about New Year's resolutions focusing on health. It could be eating better or exercising more, but how many of us are thinking about ways that you can exercise your mind? Well, today we have Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the Emmy Award-winning neurosurgeon and CNN medical correspondent, in conversation with our chief medical officer here at Salesforce, Dr. Gita Nair. That's Dr. G to her friends and all of us here on this podcast. So they're going to tell us about how we can strengthen our brains. And the conversation originally aired on Be Well Together, our sister podcast, which features well-being experts, and that's spelled B-W-E-L-L, together. And even easier, you can find it in the show notes for this episode. Okay, let's jump right into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Be Well Together. I'm Dr. Geetha Nair, the Chief Medical Officer here at Salesforce. I go by Dr. G. And I'm going to talk to you today about brain health. A lot of us know about heart health. We think about our sugar intake, our carbs, how much we exercise. But how many of us really think about our brain health? how to optimize our brain function, resiliency, how to get through life challenges. Well, today's guest is going to inspire us and talk to us about tips we need to know to take care of our brain. You may already know him as Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the Emmy Award-winning neurosurgeon and chief medical correspondent at CNN. He navigated many of us through the pandemic with his credible information, his ability to really simplify healthcare and make us smart about our health, which is what we're going to do today as we think about the brain. Dr. Gupta, welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, Dr. G. Thanks for joining us. So you wrote Keep Sharp, which was a fantastic read. Thank, Thank you for you. that. I'd love to talk to you about just your journey in medicine. You've obviously dedicated your entire career to the brain. A lot of us know a lot more about the heart. Did you tell us a little bit about that? Did you always want to be a brain surgeon? Did you just have this fascination when you were like three years old about the brain or how did it start? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think in some ways my my journey was a little bit uh, unconventional. I had a lot of my colleagues who went into who knew they wanted to be brain surgeons, you know, from a very young age, like you said, or even had parents who had done that. I I first of all had no nobody in my family was a doctor, so I didn't even have that exposure necessarily. I think I got interested in medicine um, a lot when my grandfather, my mom's dad, was in the hospital, and you know we're very close and we spent a lot of time together. So I'd go there after school in the hospital and you know, pester the doctors with all sorts of questions, I think. And I think it was the first time I thought about medicine as a career. But even then, when I was starting med school, I thought I was going to go into pediatrics because I just I I just was really um, I love kids. And I thought that would be such a uh, a wonderful you know blend to do medicine and, and kids medicine specifically. I did a neurosurgery rotation when I was in medical school. And you know, kind of fell in love with the brain. I just fell in love with the intricacy of it. I did love the mechanics of of operating, you know, just the procedural part of it. But it all sort of came together. I don't think anyone knows for sure, you know, even at the time they're applying, but it felt like the best choice for me. And that that's held up. So you, you used the word mechanics. You mentioned both your parents were in the automotive industry. Yes. And and you mentioned the analogy to the brain and mechanics. Can you tell us a little bit about that as we think about brain? Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, being being the son of two engineers, you know, everything 
in the body, you know, was immediately put into engineering terms by my parents when we'd have these discussions. And this was this was sort of interesting because, you know, the heart is like this big pump, the liver is like the big filters, you know, you got the air exchange happening with the lungs. You know, you could make a case, you know, in terms of the engineering analogies, but when it came to the brain, it was different. I mean, how do you represent the idea of this this finely tuned supercomputer that has this alternate operating system known as consciousness. Like how did, (laughs) that was the one thing that they couldn't say, yeah, that's like this part on a car, you know? And I think in some ways it, it, I think that also inspired me to, to pursue the brain because it was so wholly unique in this regard. Well, you clearly think like a neurosurgeon. I'm not quite sure. I think the same way of a a joint doctor, as you know, so (laughs) We, we, we talk a lot on Be Well Together about mental health. Help our audience understand the difference between mental health and brain health. And is, is there a connection? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a, you know, if there were two circles, you know, I think there would be a huge amount of overlap be, between these two things. I think, you know, when we think about, you know, heart health and the overall function of your heart, you know, there's these metrics that you measure, you know, what is your cholesterol level? How much blood can your heart pump out with each each beat? There's these real measurables. And then you you sort of equate that to your overall heart health. The thing about the brain, even though there's a lot of overlap between brain health and mental health, we haven't thought about the measurables the same way. What do you measure in the brain to say that it's a healthy brain? In fact, you know, as part of the writing of the book, you know, I went and spoke to lots of neurologists and brain science doctors in different areas of the country, even different parts of the world. People define healthy brain in different ways. With healthy heart, I think it's pretty, pretty agreed upon, but a healthy brain, what does that mean exactly? You know, a lot of times people will say, well, it's doesn't have a tumor, doesn't have an aneurysm, doesn't have a blood collection on it, normal sized ventricles, but those are all absence of disease, not presence of health. So I think that that's what's made the brain health, mental health sort of dichotomy a little bit more challenging because we don't define brain health in a really agreed upon way. We should, but we haven't been doing that. So, you know, you mentioned the heart. It seems like so many of us think about our heart health all the time, whether it's, you know, got to get my 10,000 steps, got to watch the sugars and carbs. How do we be proactive about our brain health? I mean, there's kind of this feeling that you can't change it. You're just born mm. with the brain that you have. Is that is that true? Is that a is that a myth? Well, the, in, in terms of you're born with the brain you have, that that is a myth. I, I think that it is pretty clear now that our brains are changing all the time. I, I was trying to explain this to my one of my teenage girls the other day. In I don't know if you saw this documentary series called um, Earth at Night. But basically, it's these guys with these low ambient light cameras, and they're capturing wildlife at night. And they're seeing things they've never seen before, because we've never been able to see wildlife at night, the way these guys do it. So they're seeing, you know, really aggressive predators being really playful with their cubs. And they're seeing, you know, animals they've never seen before, rarely seen. I think it's like that with the brain. We have only looked at the brain when it has been traumatized, when it's infiltrated with tumor. We haven't really looked at the healthy brain. When we look at the healthy brain now with all these remarkable imaging techniques, we see that the brain is constantly renourishing itself, changing and drawing new connections. It's, it's wild to watch how constantly the brain is changing. So no, we are not, we're not born with a certain brain and never changes in a static throughout our lives. It constantly changes. It's changing the time that I said that sentence. So it's, you know, that, and I think that's really inspiring. 
I think in terms of the heart health versus brain health, that first part of your question, Keith, I think this really does come down to the measurables. Because we have defined these metrics in cardiac health, blood pressure, heart rate, cholesterol, things like that, it becomes easier for people to wrap their, their head around the idea that, okay, I, I control those things. I have something to follow and to track. Again, with brain health, what is it? I mean, we know that it, a healthy brain is probably a happy brain, and I'm, and I'm not saying that euphemistically, but you kind of know when you're in good brain health, you, you're less dismissive of people, you're exercising better judgment, you have better self-control, what, whatever it may be, but those aren't as objective as keep your cholesterol below 200 or your blood pressure below 120 over 80. Again, I think that's changing as we develop these measurables, but you know, this is where we are right now. That's a great point. I'm going to have to check out that documentary as well. <laughs> so, you know, so many of us think about aging and how to slow that process down. It seems like every book, every movie, someone's got, yeah. you know, the latest TikTok is, and, and there seems to be an emphasis on aging and the brain. There's this understanding or this belief that, well, if I get older, I'm obviously going to forget everything. I won't know where I am. You've researched this your entire career. You've been all around the world speaking to specialists across different cultures, different countries. What, what are some of the common myths out there about aging and, and the actual truth? I, th- I think the biggest one, and it's, it's, a, it's a very well entrenched sort of way of thinking, because I think even when I was in medical school, the, the, the conventional wisdom was that you're given a certain number of cells, whether it be your brain or even your heart, and that's what you got. And over your life, you would drain the cash slowly. And that was sort of this, this process. And with the brain, you know, things like alcohol or something would speed up the, the decline. And, you know, that was sort of the, 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 the sort of reductionist way of looking at it, but, but a very prevalent way of looking at it. I think the biggest, the biggest thing that we now know is that there is this process of neurogenesis, new brain cell growth happening throughout our lives. I think that um, we, we assume it happens when you're a baby. We assume maybe it happens in response to some sort of injury, but it's happening throughout our lives, even in the healthy brain. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest ones. We see reflections of this in places around the world where you see you find 80, 90-year-olds and they're super sharp and they're driving and they're living independently. And we think, well, that's an exception to the rule. Well, no. In those places, it is the rule. And so we're all humans. So what is it that they're doing in those cultures, such as, you know, these centenarian cultures or whatever, that we could learn from? What are those things that they're doing that we could also do? We know it's possible. We know we grow new brain cells. And we know that even in a country like the United States, it is possible to think about brain decline in a very different way than we've been thinking about it. Right now, the expectation is likely to have some sort of assisted living, maybe long-term living facility, maybe hospital, you know, that there will be a decline, that I won't be able to take care of myself the way that I used to. That's kind of become more of an expectation, but it doesn't have to be. So Sanjay, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I am approaching middle age and I, like everyone, (laughs) (laughs) worry. 2025 is middle age? I didn't didn't know that. I did not know that. That's right. 50 is a new 20. No, but you're, you're giving us a, a lot of hope and a lot to look forward to. But I have to tell you, you know, I forget stuff. I can never find my car keys. I, I was reading your book and I was like, where'd my book go? And my daughter, <laughs> it's right there. That's it's funny. right in front of you. <laughs> so, I mean, is memory loss inevitable? Is that just something that happens with aging? Is that something we accept? Or um, 
you know, do I, do I need to start getting some help around the house? <laughs> what, what, what is your advice? No, you know, I, I say this in the, in the, um, try in, in the most helpful way possible, but you know, this idea of, of actually measuring something like that. Okay. So someone like you, I would dare say that if we were actually to put you through objective memory tests, not only would you score well, you'd probably score off the charts. Okay. So the idea again, of having this measurable would, would, would suggest that you have very good memory. So then, then it becomes a question of why are you you know, not able to find your car keys, which I do the same thing, by the way. Um, and, you know, I mean, almost always, and again, this is I hope, hopefully the helpful part is that when you talk to these memory researchers, it's almost always about how much attention you're placing at the time you, you conduct some sort of act, in this case, putting down your car keys. People think of this as forgetting, right? I, I can't, rem I, I forgot where I put my car keys. The reality is that you never remember because you didn't actually put that into your memory banks at the time you did it put the car keys down on the table. I see the car keys, I see them on the table. Now I go to the thing, now it's in your memory banks. But if you do these things mindlessly, it's not that you're forgetting, it's that you're really not ever remembering. And I know that may sound like a simple point, but especially at your age, and I know, I mean, you know, really up until, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, almost, unless there's some sort of true disease happening, it's almost always inattention or lack of attention or inadequate attention that is leading to those sorts of problems. Plus, you know, you're, you're busy. You got other, you, you understandably are distracted. You're hearing Sonia shout out for you at the same time you're putting the car keys down. That's, that's taken 99% of your attention all of a sudden. So you get it. yeah, you get, I mean, it. you get my life Sunday. <laughs> I get your life, but it's not a pathology of the brain. And I don't think it's preordained that we lose our memory. I mean, I, I talked to this guy, uh, Gita, who's 93 years old, stockbroker working in this firm, they keep him around because he's such a whiz with numbers. And he was doing four digit, you know, multiplication and division, you know, with me just in his head. And he was recalling all these like lines and books that he had read. He just was constantly using his brain. I think as we get older, especially retire in this country, you start to use it less. And to the extent that the brain is like a muscle, if you're not using it, you do tend to lose it over time. That's not happening to you. Yours is a different issue of, of, of having a lot of, of uh, things that are competing for your attention. Sanjay, well, I think we have our next episode of Be Well. We're clearly going to do the memory test and we're going to both look <laughs> for our car keys and, uh, and see what happens with our children yelling at us. I think it could be an interesting episode. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. You know, how much of this, though, is genetics? I mean, whenever I know whenever we do something great, our mom tends to say, well, that's all my genes when we do something not so great. She, you know, she points, points at my dad and says, yeah, that's that half. So how much, how much is, is genetics? How much can we really not change? First of all, your mom sounds hilarious. That's so funny. You know, oh, it's all, it's all me. I don't want to take all the credit here, but you know, good genes. Um, so funny. You're definitely getting a sense. You're getting a sense of your family. <laughs> a, three generations of your family. I'm getting it. What I would say, it's interesting. If you take something specific like, like Alzheimer's disease, I think if you have genes such as in this case, people who pay attention to this may recognize the EPO gene as something that you can get tested for. If you have if you have two, two copies of the, the um, EPO4 gene, you are at a probably eight to 12 times higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. So I think in a situation where you clearly have, you know, genetic risk factors, clearly, then I think it's of some utility. 
but almost for everything else, the genetics plays a very little role. In fact, you would you would probably be well within your right to say lifestyle factors for just about everybody else. And I'm talking 90% plus of the population, it is lifestyle factors. And even with the genetic abnormalities, if I say eight to 10 times more likely, well, if your chance of developing this is 0.1%, now I'm saying it may be up to 1%, right? It's not like saying, oh my gosh, you are now preordained to get this disease. It's not what these genetic that genetic testing can tell you. It can increase, it can tell you your increased risk as compared to the general population. But I think it's always a useful exercise for people to look at not just relative risk, but absolute risk. 10 times higher relative risk, that sounds a lot. 0.1 to one, still a lot, but that's that's 99 times out of 100, I'm still not gonna develop the disease. So, I mean, very similar to what we do with, with other diseases, really. Yes. Totally. I mean, the, the the where we are right now, I think, and, and it'll get more precise, but it's never going to be sort of a fortune teller, which is what I think people often look to genetic testing to be. It'll give science is not about proof. Science is about likelihood given the evidence. And I think one of the places where you see that the most is in the scenario that you're you're describing, you know, genetic testing for some sort of ailment like like Alzheimer's. So, you know, speaking of Alzheimer's, we, we now know, right, that symptoms tend to start 20, 30 years before you actually have the disease. And everyone's biggest fear is losing their independence, right? Cognitive decline leading to a loss of independence is, I think, what most people really fear. I know many of my patients, you know, talk about this as well. Do you recommend a self-assessment for specifically for cognitive decline so that an intervention can be made sooner? I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of data, yes. I think that um, self-assessments um, can be very useful if for no other reason to provide, than to provide self-awareness. So if you are having something objective that is changing within your brain, yeah, sometimes these tests may pick it up before you do. That would be the value of it. Um, Having said that, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, as, as docs, I think one of the things I think I'm sure you and I both learned in medical school is you want to order tests with a clear sort of question of what is the decision tree after I get the result of that test? Am I going to do something based on the result of this test that's different than what I'm already doing? Or is this just sort of a academic curiosity? Um, I think you have to have a plan. If you're going to cognitively self-assess, you should have some idea of what you're going to do with the results ahead of time. Maybe it's very specific, like nutritional changes or, or you know, how, you're, how you're moving, you know, your movement, your exercise routines, whatever it may be. Or maybe it's you know, more about brain rest or something like that. But whatever it is, take the test with some action, I would say, in mind. So, you know, I really like the analogy you made in the book, likening the brain to a historic building that needs maintenance, you know, foundation, a strong foundation, maybe because I went through a home renovation during COVID, which was very painful, um, that really <laughs> that really spoke to me. But, but you talk about this cognitive reserve and how that can kind of thwart dementia or stave it off. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how do you build up your cognitive reserve? Yeah, totally. I, I think this may have been the most interesting part for me, just, you know, um, being able to talk to all these neuroscientists and get into this this sort of nuanced idea of, of reserve and how they look at it. Because it's a term that's used a lot, cognitive resiliency, cognitive reserve. 
but you know we're i think at the nascent stages of this gita so i think you know even how people define these terms changes a bit but one thing i'll say just quickly in terms of the the maintaining the structure you know i i use this analogy I'd been traveling and I'd stayed in some really old hotel, I think, at the time that I was writing part of the book. And it was this beautiful, beautiful building, right? It was it was old. It was several hundred years old. And yet it was just so lovely. It was a place that people wanted to come and stay in. They admired it and, and all that. And I thought it was a pretty good analogy for the brain. You know, our my brain is the age that it is. I'm I'm not changing that. That that is that is a fact. But in terms of how well it's maintained, whether or not it's a brain that you'd want to come visit and stay there, you know, I think that's really the way to think about it. And if you look at how these buildings are maintained, um, sometimes you have to do big wholesale changes. But for the most part, it's just a daily routine of making sure, you know, paint is not chipped and floors are clean and, you know, all the things that you would do. If you could think about your brain that way, I think just metaphorically, it would go a long way. Yeah, I need to take care of my brain a little bit today. And there's very specific ways that I talk about what that means in the book, but, you know, to, to be intentional about that is really important, I think. And so, you know, when, when we, when we think about um, uh, longer term, if you do fewer of these actions now earlier in life, you know that they pay off much greater later in life. And I think that frankly, that is sort of the secret of, of many of these centenarian cultures. And that and that sort of dovetails very nicely into to cognitive reserve and resiliency. I think fundamentally, honestly, I was thinking about it all wrong when I started to think about cognitive reserve. I, I thought about it in terms of like surge power, you know, like you know, like you might think of in a car again, the surge that you might have if you suddenly need to like accelerate. Some of it's that, but I think a better way of looking at it is that we use our entire brains. The idea that we only use a small percentage is that's not true. But I think what we can more accurately say is that we probably use 10% of our brain 90% of the time. And so we have all of this extra brain power that exists that's sort of sitting there, but we're not using it. And if you do things to use those other parts of the brain by doing, you know, unusual activities, learning new languages, you know, instruments, not just, you know, crossword puzzles and Sudoku you're starting to activate all these other parts of the brain. And that's really the reserve. You, you need to let, you're like firing up the engines and all these different places so that they can immediately like provide extra sort of thought power, neuronal power, whatever you want to call it to a particular problem. So doing different things, not doing the same thing really, really well, that's important. Sonia may play 10,000 hours of piano, that's great. But the idea that she might learn how to paint with her left hand, that would probably do more towards her cognitive reserve longer term. She's not an artist. She's right-handed. This <clears> is a <throat> totally new thing. That's actively building up reserve and resiliency. I could talk about this all day, you know, as you can tell. But that's sort of how I, that's how I look at it. So I think I just found our um, our holiday activity. You might be hearing from Sunday when I say you need to start painting with your left hand. <laughs> it's amazing. I brush my teeth one. with my left hand. I will do these things where I will get dressed in the morning sometimes with my eyes closed. I, I look ridiculous, but why do I do that? I do that because so much of how we interpret the world is is through visual medium, and as soon as you turn that off, which you can do by closing your eyes 
it's amazing the parts of your brain that are now harnessed into action to remember, do I turn right here? Wait, how do I get to the sink? Is the left is the hot water on the left or the right? You know, like where's my toothbrush? You know, putting a tie on, you know, with my eyes closed, doing all that, it forces you to use all these senses that you don't use as much. And that that's I think a big part, as was explained to me, of building that cognitive reserve. That's brilliant. So it's not as simple as Sudoku and Wordle. Wordle's not going to get us to like 95 and, and driving the car and running <laughs> down the street. We, it sounds like we need to challenge our brain in every facet is what you're saying. Yeah. I, you know, if you keep the sort of, we use 90% of our, we use 10% of our brain 90% of the time, doing the crosswords and Wordles are, are great, but it's kind of making you really good at using that 10% of your brain. You're even better at it. Like if, you know, I, you can now like drive through that 10% of the brain with your eyes closed, maybe whatever you want to look at it. What you really want to do is, is, is get outside that 10% of the brain and use other areas of your brain. And how you do that is super interesting. And, and it was interesting to talk to these neuroscientists about how they intentionally do that in their lives, how they're constantly activating these other parts of their brains. And frankly, the, the joy that comes with that. It's kind of like having a super, sure. super amazing tuned up, you know, race car and every now and then just being able to let it rip. You know, it's like, I'm not, I didn't buy this fancy sports car to drive two miles to carpool every day, right? I want to let it rip. That's your brain. <laughs> That's how you should think about your brain. I love that. So you got to paint with the left hand and then do Wordle and you'll be that much better at it. <laughs> I think, Both I think are important for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the words that came out of the pandemic was resiliency. We all went through a lot. We're still going through a lot, depending who you are, what your health is like, and where in the world you are. So what is the tie between resiliency and brain health? Because there are challenges every day in life, from, from where's your car keys to a car accident to just the, the stress of life. So, so what is that connection with resiliency and brain health? I think the, the best way that I would sort of answer that is to almost flip it a little bit in the sense of saying that when you have good brain health, and again, I, I earlier we talked about how that is sometimes hard to measure, although it may be one of those things that you know it when you have it, you know when you're, you have good brain health. Um, but when you're there, those same trials and tribulations of life tend to not be as destructive. I guess that's the best way that I would put it. It's it's not that the life has changed. It's not that you didn't still lose your car keys or that maybe something, you know, something really bad happened in your life. You know, it happens. But I think someone with with good brain health is is far more likely to not be crushed by the events of daily life. Uh, but maybe I would be euphemistic maybe but to say that you'd be strengthened by it to some extent. I think that's one of the big the big differences. So resiliency in this regard means that if you're looking at the same exact event today or whatever day it may be, and you compare it to <clears throat> a month from now, did you respond the same way? Did you really get stressed by not finding your car keys or did it become another sort of, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not, I'm not going to be crushed by this. That I think is the connection between brain health and resiliency. It's not taking away or changing your life narrative. It's allowing you to respond to the life narrative in a much, frankly, healthier and and um, a more mature, judgmental, in a good way, way. So Sunday, wow, you've been, I mean, this has been such an optimistic conversation. I know I have some homework to do after this. But the, the real takeaway is that 
there's a lot we can do to make our brain even better. And I know that the five pillars you mentioned in the book really, really struck me. Could you, could you walk us through the five pillars and what sure. that nourishment looks like? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was writing this, I spent a lot of time reading all these scientific papers and talking to these neuroscientists. And then I wanted to put it down in a way that I could understand and that, you know, I think people would. <laughs> and I did break it down these five things, the big five, how we move, how we nourish, how we rest, but also the real role of, of purpose and discovery and, and things like that. I think that um, what I would say is that as a general rule, I think what is good for the heart is good for the brain. That That is true. When we think about heart health and aerobic activity, the type of heart healthy diet, things like that, there's a lot of crossover. But I think what, what strikes me is that the brain is, is also different. So it, the rules hold up to a certain level. So with movement, for example, um, when we're talking about growing new brain cells, one of the ways that happens is by a substance known as brain-derived neurotrophic factor. You don't need to remember that, BDNF. But one of the best, most reliable <laughs> ways for us to make BDNF is through activity, is through movement. And, and, and we know that you, you'll make that. It's kind of like miracle growth for the brain. It's really healthy. So, But here's a little bit of a difference between heart health and brain health. With heart health, you might say, okay, going for runs and things like that, training for races, whatever it may be, really good for the heart, true. But when you do intense activity, you tend to make a lot of BDNF, but you also make a lot of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And that inhibits this, this miracle growth for the brain. So if you want to do something good for your heart, you go for a run. If you want to do something good for your brain, you go for a brisk walk. There is a little bit of a difference, the nuance in terms of how we look at the brain versus the heart. When it comes to diet, I mean, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time, but, you know, you eat a lot of calories, eat a lot of sugar, for example, the body will store that as fat. That The body is thinking, hey, I may never get a meal again, you know, ever, so I'm going to store everything. That's how we evolved. Brains didn't evolve that way. As soon as you have too much glucose in the bloodstream, for example, what happens? It's really fascinating. Instead of absorbing more and more energy, the receptors just turn off. So as soon as you get outside a certain window of blood glucose, your brain just starts starving itself. It's counterintuitive. You're not using the energy anymore. At the same time you're feeding your body a lot of calories, you could be starving your brain. That's a nuance. Sugar is particularly toxic to the brain. And then when it comes to, to rest, you know, I'll just give you the big three in this case. Um, we know a lot, a lot is happening in the brain during the times that we rest and sleep. We know that that is actually the time when the experiences you've had today are actually going to get consolidated from short-term memory to longer-term memory, so that a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, you can actually recall some of the events of this. Um, we also know that just like we're always clearing waste from our body, every time a cell divides in our body, a certain amount of waste is generated. It's constantly being cleared. That's happening in the brain as well. It's happening all the time, but it's far more likely to be happening when you're at rest or sleep. So, you know, this, this starts to give you an idea of, of what is a brain healthy lifestyle like. Again, a lot of crossover with heart health, but those are some of the differences as well. You know, that's, that's fascinating. There's, there's so much that we could go on about, but I know that we only have so much time. My last question to you is really about connection. So again, something we learned during the pandemic is the importance of connection. And as we think about the holidays, I mean, how do you maximize that connection, right? We have this newfound appreciation 
for connection now. So what is the way to maximize that both for the connection, but also for that brain health part? How do you make it, how do you make it count? You know, I, I got to, I'm so glad you, you asked this because in some ways for me personally, this may have been one of the, the greater insights when thinking about the book, but also just in all these conversations I had while researching the book. And I will preface by saying it may be the least, there's not a lot of evidence around this, but it's, but it's so interesting. I want you to sort of hear it the way that I heard it. Connections is, as we know, measured in all sorts of different ways. Numbers of connections, quality of connections. And if you've heard anything, you've heard that it's the quality, not the number of connections that matters. And I think that holds up. But I think what has been challenging for loneliness researchers is to understand what then qualifies as a quality relationship, a quality connection. And here's where it got super interesting because you know people would say, is this somebody you could call if you had some sort of crisis situation, you know, would they call you if they had some sort of crisis situation? All those are good. But what they found in some of this loneliness data, which, you know, is, is what really intrigued me was that when you are vulnerable as an individual to another individual, and that could take the form of asking for help, for example, or being vulnerable, sharing something about yourself that is, is vulnerable, that is a almost surefire way to develop a quality connection with somebody. And I, I found this so interesting. We, we tend to be not very vulnerable as human beings. We're especially uh, less vulnerable at times when we think we may be getting judged. That could be around by our family at the holidays. It could be at the workplace and maybe whatever. But if you truly allow yourself to be vulnerable, people are looking at Geeta and they're like, Geeta's got it all together, man. She's, she's living that life, you know? Like what could she possibly need or want, you know, and, and when you are vulnerable, when someone like you is vulnerable, it can lead to a profound connection. So I, you know, I've covered tragic stories all over the world, wars, natural disasters. It wasn't what I expected to be doing, frankly, at this age, especially, but I got to tell you, Geetha, some of the closest, deepest connections I have made have been with people in some of the worst times of their lives. And these are relationships that are bound in cement. I'm not suggesting that you should be at the worst time of your life, but I'm saying allowing yourself to be vulnerable, asking for help um, can go a long way towards those connections and something to think about, you know, during the holidays when you're with all these people you love. That's that's such terrific advice. Thank you so much for that, Sanjay. You know, I think it humanizes it, right? It humanizes yeah. the connection. It's honest. Because it's, right, from, and, and to your point, from the outside, things might look a certain way. Everyone in my house knows that we do not have it together here. So I, I assure you that that we just do our best. See, I like feel a deeper connection does. with you just for you saying that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, listen, I cannot thank you enough. We will absolutely have to do this again when you write the next book and find out more. Thank you from one Dr. G to another for, for keeping us sharp, letting us know what we can do to not just maintain our brain health, but to actually grow and progress. And thank you to everyone who tuned in today to hear Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Remember to be happy be healthy, and be well, everyone. Thank you. Well, that was Emmy Award-winning neurosurgeon and CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, speaking with Dr. Gita Nayir, our chief medical officer here at Salesforce. Well, if you want to hear more trailblazing interviews, subscribe to Blazing Trails wherever you listen to your podcasts, or subscribe to us on the Salesforce YouTube channel. And a huge end of year thank you to everybody who helps make Blazing Trails. It's produced by Rachel Levin, edited by Cynthia Chavez, with original music by Andrew Duncan. Thank you.
And that's a wrap for 2022. Thanks so much for joining, and we wish all of you a happy and healthy holiday season. I'm Michael Rebo.